So a warm welcome to you all. We're really excited to have so many people joining us for this virtual event. And I'd like to uh, point out before I really begin that we do have live captioning this evening. So for anyone who would like or needs um, captions, please um, know that that is currently happening. So welcome to Helen Frankenthaler, Woodcuts and the Tale of Genji, a conversation with Karen Kuntz and Ikuho Amano. I'm Erin Hannes, Curator of Academic Engagement at Sheldon Museum of Art, and I'm delighted to introduce this program um, for this evening and the participants. We are thrilled to have so many people joining us for what promises to be a stimulating conversation. I would like to thank the Nebraska Arts Council and Nebraska Cultural Endowment, as well as the Hickson Lead Endowment for making this event possible. So thank you. The mission of Sheldon Museum of Art is to inspire inquiry and discovery through our collections, exhibitions, and programs across the University of Nebraska, the state, and beyond. And this, pro this evening's program really embodies this aim. The idea for today's conversation grew out of our curi curiosity to learn more about one work of art Helen Frankenthaler's large 34 color woodblock print, Tales of Genji One, which was recently acquired by the museum. Questions we asked included, what was the process for creating this print? What is the tale of Genji about? What is the relationship between Frankenthaler's print and the 11th century Japanese novel? It became clear to us that Frankenthaler's woodblock print had the potential to generate a rich discussion across disciplinary boundaries. And what better place to look for conversation partners than the University of Nebraska-Lincoln community that we are fortunate to be part of. Luckily for us and for you all, Karen Kuntz and Ikuho Amano agreed to share their knowledge with us and uh, Melissa Ewan graciously agreed to moderate. It is now my pleasure to introduce this evening's speakers. Karen Kuntz is a prolific printmaker and artist. She has had 110 solo exhibitions and received numerous awards. She is Professor Emeritus of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she taught from 1983 to 2020. Since 2013, she has also been the founder, director, and owner of Constellation Studios, a creative gallery, workspace, and professional classroom for print, paper, and bookmaking in Lincoln. Karen's prints and artist books stem from her contemplation of the forces of the natural world, ephemeral encounters, and the immeasurability of time and distance. Born in Omaha, Nebraska, she received her BFA from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and her MFA from The Ohio State University. Ikuho Amano is an associate professor of Japanese at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Her areas of research and teaching include modern Japanese literature, popular culture, film, and language. Her recent research has explored Japan's decadent literature in comparative contexts, material culture, and body politics in the post-World War II decades. She is currently 
contemplating a book project on Japan's economic bubble in the 1980s and its consumer culture. Originally from Osaka, Japan, Ikuho read The Tale of Genji in high school. She went on to receive her BA and MA from the University of Georgia and her PhD from Pennsylvania State University. Melissa Ewan is the Associate Curator of Exhibitions at Sheldon Museum of Art. She holds an MA and PhD in Art History from Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Prior to working at Sheldon, Melissa was the Curatorial Fellow of European and American Art to 1900 at Cantor Arts Center at Stanford University and a Jane and Whitney Morgan Fellow in the Department of European Paintings at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Melissa, I turn it over to you now. Thank you, Erin. Um, thank you for the introduction. And I would like to echo and really welcome um, every echoes, um, echo Erin's remarks and really welcome everyone who is joining us today. So I will first begin with an overview of um, the exhibition that really spawned um, that served as the genesis for this um, event today. So as we see, we have Helen Frankenthaler's Tale of Genji One installed in our focus gallery um, on the second floor of the Sheldon Museum of Art. And this is a very intimate exhibition um, where it allows really for a focus on the print itself. And I show here Helen Frankenthaler's um, Tale of Genji One. And Frankenthaler, She's one of the most innovative artists working in New York during the second half of the 20th century. So I'm really excited to see the kinds of conversations that um, we will be able to have tonight. So the goal of this exhibition um, is to really highlight the extraordinary and the collaborative process um, that was undertaken to make this print. Um, some of the process is detailed in this brochure, which will be, which are available in the gallery. And for those um, who are unable to visit the exhibition in person, um, I welcome, I direct you to the Sheldon's website where um, a digital brochure is also available. So let's, let us now turn our attention to Frankenthaler's print. As we see, it is a large print. Um, it measures 42 by 47 inches. And this is a print that originated as a soak stain painting where Frankenthaler poured diluted acrylic paints onto a sheet of plywood. And then the printmakers at Tyler Graphics um, then translated it into a woodblock print, into the woodblock print that we see here. So they ended up um, replicating the pooling and really the layering of the acrylic paints that Frankenthaler used. And I show here two details and we can see the lovely um, pooling and the staining that we see. And we can also see how um, the, the, the paper itself really even has the wood grain built into it. And the print really extends to the edges of the sheet and really soaking in and really pooling again in the decal of the sheet as well. And this is a process that um, Karen will talk more about in, um, shortly. So, this print is the first in a series of six prints inspired by the 11th century novel, Tale of Genji, written by um, Murasaki Shikibu, a lady-in-waiting in, uh, Jap in, in Japan's imperial court. So before we turn our attention to the making of the print, um, I'd like to start this conversation off with a question to Ikuho. Um, can you please give a brief, almost like a Cliff Notes style summary of what the Tales of Genji is about? 
Yes, actually, it, it is a very kind of daunting task because uh, it is such a, an old and a long novel. And altogether, uh, the tale of Genji consists of 54 chapters. And the first 44 chapters deal with the, uh, the life of uh, Hikaru Genji, the protagonist of this novel. Um, he was born to be um, uh, the prince in the imperial court. Um, his father was the uh, emperor of the time, and uh, his mother was actually um, the lower-ranked concubine. And because of mother's upbringing and uh, um, the poor social background, uh, he was um, this Genji, Hikaru Genji was um, removed from the line of succession. So um, the most of the story actually pretty much from the, the chapter two and on deal with um, his a sense of despair and the resignations. And as a result, he enters in the, um, numerous love affairs, including um, someone's wives and in, including actually the, um, his father, emperor's and wife as well. And uh, as a result, he actually produced one, uh, the sacred child out of um, their affairs. Um, but also at the same time, he is being deceived by his uh, wife. Um, and also, well, there are so many ups and downs in his life, mostly just through um, his intimate relationship with uh, numerous women. Um, but um, he ended up having a, a just enough, but the four wives, uh, recognize the four wives, um, but, um, but he has been always in love with uh, and one woman whose name is uh, Murasaki Noue. Um, and she passes away when she was only seven, uh, 37 years old. Um, soon after, the Genji actually loses all his energy himself and uh, decides to um, the, retire from this, um, the, the life in the, the court, uh, imperial court. And so he enters in a kind of monastic life in the mountain. And so the last, chap uh, last chapter, which um, deals with uh, uh, his life was uh, chapter 44, um, which contains only the title. Uh, just uh, Somehow we can translate just a disappearing um, behind the crowd or something. And uh, it's that other chapter is just remain blank, but uh, the leader definitely um, just, uh, you know, suspects that he already passed away. Um, and the remaining 10 chapters deal with uh, um, his, uh, the Hikaru Genji's the son and uh, um, the grandson's life and their kind of continuous and the love affairs, almost like a taking over um, the Genji's, uh, you know, persona um, as a womanizer, pretty much. So yeah, just to make make it short, this could be the, uh, the story of the story, the novel. It, it sounds almost like it's a, a really scandalous novel in a way, right? Um, so I know that the tale of Genji as a novel is really important in um, pre-modern Japanese culture. And I know that you've also gathered some really interesting images illustrating different scenes from the novel. Um, do you think we can talk through some of them and talk through some very specific moments? Uh, yes, absolutely. And um, actually, you know, Melissa, excuse me, can we just go back to the, uh, another? Uh, of course. Image before. Yes, I just wanted to share this image with everybody because last year uh, the Metropol and Metropolitan Museum um, of Arts in New York actually the featured the Tale of Genji collection. Um, most most of them actually was um, collected from a uh, um, you know the pre-modern um, the productions of all these images. So. I think we are really on a kind of in a timely and fashion, we are also dealing with this topic. So thank you, let's just move on. Okay. Thank you. Um, 
is, is actually, uh, this scene is oftentimes uh, used for many uh, famous um, exhibition, including the one in the Metropolitan Museum uh, in New York. Um, but uh, this scene already actually depicts um, a moment when already the Genji, Hikaru Genji, the protagonist, uh, passed away. And uh, here, actually, the main character, uh, the most uh, important um, the protagonist here in this moment is uh, uh, this the woman just showing um, her, her just long hairs, long floating hairs, uh, and uh, facing us back to back. Um, she is such a beautiful um, just woman who became a kind of illeg uh, illegitimate child of uh, the one on um, the imperial family members. And but uh, um, Genji, uh, Hikaru Genji's um, the son and also grandson, both of them actually try to make an advance to this woman. And out of this kind of caught in the middle, um, caught in between the two menstruation, uh, she becomes kind of neurotic, um, the, the difficult time she's having. And the woman actually next to her is um, reading a sort of a, um, kind of a picture scroll and some stories, um, kind of folk tale, and, and trying to console this lady. <laughs> So this is a moment. And I want to point out that um, this, hands, this is an, a scene from a larger hand scroll. And I want to point out the date. It dates to about 1130. So it's a 12th century hand scroll made not long after um, the text was written. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. in this particular work, we see kind of several um, characteristics of Japanese painting of the period. Most notably, you know, this is an interior scene. But the only reason why we as viewers can see into it is that the artist has decided to take the roof off the building. So we're, we, we have this um, sort of bird's eye view looking into the scene. And that's why we see the expansive interior as well. Absolutely. And we keep seeing that and the same images just kept um, being produced one after the other up until um, the 17th and 18th century. And yeah. um, this is a scene actually um, when um, Hikaru Genji um, is just uh, trying to cross the mountain pass. Uh, there's a, um, it, it is a very kind of trivial scene because uh, um, he um, himself and also his kind of servant uh, was trying to just uh, take, um, make a temporary um, kind of hermit life for a while because uh, this this practice actually is pretty often seen in pre-modern time. Uh, there is a so-called uh, the katagai and um, like and ancient Japan follows pretty much like a, a Chinese calendar uh, and the sort of the idea of funsui uh, in the many you know the everyday practice. And in this thing, actually, so. Um, uh, the imperial court members was uh, the told that the, okay, okay that this um, the particular setting of the um, imperial court in uh, the today's Kyoto is uh, kind of under attack of some evil spirit or something like that. So just momentarily they are trying to across the part and the mountain pass. And uh, in the meantime, this is uh, also an uh, important scene because while uh, they were taking a kind of under uh, temporary detour, um, Hikaru Genji is just meeting um, the beautiful woman <laughs> whose identity is still unknown to him. And um, just for briefly about, you know, the formal qualities, the visual qualities of this work, despite its um, rather problematic um, condition issues, um, the figures seem to be floating. And I'm just going to leave that right now because we will return to this idea of floating. Um, 
as we continue with our discussion. And then these are two 17th century picture albums. Again, we see, you know, the blown off roof and the kind of similar um, expansive interior as well. Absolutely. Um, yes, this uh, left, left uh, image actually depicts the moment when uh, Genji meets uh, um, the kind of old retired and Buddhist monk who is residing in the area called the Akashi. And she's today's seaside resort across to and Osaka in the Kobe area in Japan. Um, he is meeting this man uh, and initially he didn't have any intention, but uh, his uh, the young daughter happened to be beautiful and very intelligent, very refined um, the woman, although um, they are living in the um, in the kind of countryside. And at this moment, he is, and Genji is actually in the exile. Uh, he just happened to be in a trouble by actually having an intimate moment with uh, um, kind of his political enemies and the daughter. And he was just uh, caught by the moment by the father <laughs> of that uh, woman. Anyway, so because of this um, kind of incident, he's in the exile. Um, so he's enjoying a sort of a kind of a moment of, um, uh, can I say kind of serene, um, more philosophical, con con philosophically kind of contemplative moment together with uh, this Buddhist monk. And uh, um, also we can maybe take a look at uh, uh, this light, uh, light hand image. Um, yeah. Oh, the right hand image. Whoops, I'm sorry. There we go. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you, uh, Melissa. Um, so light hand image actually depicts a moment when uh, the Genji found um, for the first time um, is his future wife, uh, Murasaki no Ue, when he, uh, she was still 10 years old, pretty much just as, as a you know, um, young, young child she used to be in this scene. And she was just a, uh, chasing um, you know, like a sparrow, little bird. <laughs> so he was, and she was just a, such a, you know, the young, adorable, um, um, just a girl. And, but uh, he is developing kind of interest in her and later takes her into uh, um, the court life and eventually she becomes our um, most important wife in his life. And then our final um, early modern image. Yes, this one perhaps you can just kind of decipher what is going on and again she's trying to make advancement uh, to a vulnerable woman. Uh, this is actually uh, someone's wife um, and and you know, just in order to sneak into her mansion, uh, he needed to get a um, you know, um, the support from someone. So um, the long-haired, uh, you know, another character on the left um, left-hand corner. Um, he he actually said, uh, became a um, kind of a go between, and uh, he led um, Genji into this mansion. So she is in trouble, but uh, he he is taking a prison. Well, thank you for that, Akuho. Um, so as we can see. Um, there is such a rich visual culture in early modern Japanese, um, during the early modern Japanese period. And so if we turn our attention back to Frankenthaler's print, it is evident that um, Frankenthaler really deviates from these depictions of the tales of Genji that we've been looking at so far. And she deviates um, from them in really significant ways. Like for her, the print itself 
And the series, The Tales of Genji, um, they're abstract images, and they do not depict specific moments from the text. And also, Frankenthaler isn't really working within you know, the traditional Japanese scroll painting that we've briefly alluded to. And instead, um, she turns to the technique of woodblock printing. So now I would like to turn it over to Karen to talk to us briefly about um, the history of this kind of printing. Thank you. <clears throat> well, I, I wanted to begin with the idea that Helen Frankenthaler was a significant printmaker throughout her career. She made prints in etching and lithography as well as woodblock throughout all that time. And this pivotal work of uh, Helen's uh, Essence Mulberry from 1977 is a landmark print that um, was part of the woodblock revival and innovation that kind of grew out of the 70s and the 80s. And uh, the print itself is not done in the Japanese method. It was done in the Western oil-based block printing method, but it carries so much of the aesthetics that Helen is fam famous for the kind of flowing space, the abstraction, uh, the gestures made by brush strokes, the pouring of paint translated into the woodblock print. This one actually features the paper itself so much because the lower section, that yellow, is the uh, pure paper. And uh, this was such a beautiful print, influenced a lot of us um, right away, and I'll talk about is a little bit more, but she was working at this time through the Western woodblock methods, which we trace through uh, Europe uh, and Gutenberg with using the relief surface from wood to print and using the press to cause the impression to be transferred. So a lot of muscle was necessary to use those presses. Aaron, this is Aaron. I'm just going to interrupt really quickly. Apologies. I'm not sure what happened with the image of the Essence Mulberry, but uh, we got a few comments that it was missing from the slide. Oh, that's too bad. I think it shows up again later. Um, so in the next one, we can see um, Helen Frankenthaler working at Tyler Graphics. Even back then, Tyler Graphics was the publishing house that produced the Essence Mulberry and similar other woodblock prints at that time. And uh, Tyler Graphics is famous for um, amazing technical feats of printmaking, printing with gigantic presses. We even see the scale of one of Helen's woodblock prints on a hydraulic press. The guys are standing on the press bed itself, positioning this uh, beautiful large print to be uh, pressed from the top. So woodblock prints done in the Western way are always done with oil-based ink and rollers that apply the ink to the surface. So here's some examples. The roller is the application tool and um, the low places are carved away from the block. And with printer's ink, oil-based printer's ink, it's very sticky. Uh, you have to use tools to manipulate it and rollers. And when you're doing color printing, you have a big palette with lots of colors and lots of rollers in play while uh, the printing is, uh, the ink is being applied to the wood blocks. 
And yes, here still the muscle is being applied. Rollers, uh, big rollers, in some instances, the printing presses uh, causing the transfer of the ink from the woodblock onto the surface of the paper. So here's Helen's uh, Essence Mulberry print again. One of the featured qualities of this is that it uses a rainbow roll, the big colorful blending multiple colors on the same roller at one time, which is kind of a tour de force technique that uh, sometimes can even be criticized as being a cliche. But in Helen's print, I think it creates this transitional space that uh, she is so interested in, uh, which carries over into all of the tales of Genji prints as well. So a great big ra rainbow roll was done with uh, the blending of the colors. I remember hearing at the time even uh, Helen, uh, Ken Tyler was discussing making this print and that Helen was searching for just the right red and they were eating mulberries in uh, or raspberries off of the tree in the yard and she said it's this color that I need. So they managed to mix that beautiful uh, color. Karen, um, we have one question um, from uh, Terry Power. Uh, did the oil-based inks make those larger prints possible? Um, I think one of the features of oil-based ink is that it doesn't dry out fast. So you have a long working time and you can ink up these large blocks and it may take several, um, sometimes it takes me an hour to ink up my block and the inks stay fresh and wet and you're able to um, continue printing all day long with those wet inks. So it could have been something that was uh, lending a quality to that. It was how we were interested in doing prints uh, even at that time with all the uh, Western approaches. And, and one more sort of related, um, if you could explain the rainbow roll in a little more detail. Okay, uh, the rainbow roll, or they call it a split fountain, several terms for it, means that you put two colors on the glass slab close to each other and dip the roller into the edge of it and pull it out. And it just naturally, as you roll on the glass, it naturally creates a blend down the middle. And uh, so you can have those colors transition. Um, some of these examples are really incredible to have five or so colors blending all at the same time. It's very tricky. They could end up contaminating each other if you don't roll in a track. So even the guy holding that big blend looks pretty amazing. He's pretty proud of himself. So I wanted to contrast the Western way with the Eastern way. Uh, because uh, in Asia, all printing was done from woodblock prints for almost 2,000 years. So uh, we have that tradition of using the carved woodblock. Uh, here are some monks that keep libraries of these carved woodblocks on hand. Uh, they are prayers. They can pull them out and print some prayers off and distribute them or put them out on a, in a prayer wheel and and so the text is constantly able to be uh, reused. And if the block wears out, another one is carved. But they're printing by hand. They're using 
uh, Sumi ink, which is a mixture of lap, lamp black pigment and paste and sometimes shellac. And it ends up uh, creating a, an ink that is applied not with rollers, but with brushes onto the wood block. And we know of the influence, worldwide influence and interest in the Japanese Yukioi woodblock prints, the height of qualities. And uh, the Yukioi prints done in the 1600s through the 1800s mean prints, uh, pictures of the floating world. So it was images of these ephemeral times and uh, pleasures and uh, beauty that's transient, time that's transient. And uh, they are characteristically colorful, lots of blocks, tight registration, amazing carving of the woodblock itself. Here's a couple examples of the print shop. These were produced in a publishing house also. So we have that idea of multiple artisans working together to create the productions. Uh, and they had tasks assigned to them or they grew up learning one specialty. Somebody was an expert carver, somebody was an expert printer, somebody was the one who managed the paper, somebody was the specialist who could carve the hair on the uh, coiffures of those uh, beautiful geishas. Uh, we have examples here of these print shops of division of labor. One is a parody. It's all these beautiful geisha girls uh, working in the print shop. And that's not the case. <laughs> it was the, the artisans not wearing those amazing kimonos. But it's such a fanciful image. It's really beautiful. And again, we're very fascinated by how these were made. And aware of the numbers of blocks that it takes to create this uh, image. So here's a picture of all the different blocks that were used to create the Utamaro uh, woodblock print, including the black block uh, that's uh, facing the illustration. So numerous blocks that are carved like puzzle pieces, uh, when it's printed in registration, all of those get aligned and the black key block prints on top. But at that time um, when Helen was working, I think there was uh, interesting developments also in other publishing houses. Crown Point Press that's based in San Francisco uh, was a leader in taking Western artists to Japan to work with some of these traditional artisans and they created a series of woodblock prints by famous artists, uh, William Wiley and Francisco Clemente, for example, here, uh, incredibly complicated prints that were made with the artisans doing a translation from a watercolor sketch. So it was a wonderful production. Uh, in the 1980s, when these came out, it was actually quite controversial among us in, in, the, in the States, at least, because Originally, they were not attributed to a collaboration. It was just, here's William Wiley's print. And after some controversy, then uh, Crown Point Press now always acknowledges the artisans that were enabling these uh, amazing productions to be made. And I'm but going I to jump in here briefly. 
I'm going to jump in here briefly and mention that um, the Francisco Clemente print is also currently on view um, in our exhibition titled Person of Interest. Oh, good. It's a spectacular print. And again, I think the spectacular part is the analysis that it takes to figure out the special blendings and shapes and the stains from the watercolor and translate it into multiple layers of woodblock. Um, but I think this also set off a hierarchy of competition. So if, if Crown Point Press Publishing House is doing these amazing prints and collaborating with this body of knowledge that these artisans in Japan had, then it could set in motion the next group, which was uh, Ken Tyler at Tyler Graphics. Um, but here we see a, a specialist wood carver working on carving the wood blocks. And the specialist printers, the printers who have this knowledge. And it, of course, it's a, is it a dying art? Uh, there's not as many publishing houses as there once were. There, people lament the loss of knowledge that it means if these people are retiring. So there's uh, interesting efforts to share this knowledge. Uh, particularly, I'm, I'm featuring examples from the International Mokuhanga Conference. We've had three international meetings, and uh, this is one of the printers who's showing how he prints in the Kyoto style. And you can see in the other image all the blocks that it takes to create the Great Wave. And the Great Wave is so famous now. Everybody knows this image. It's spread all around the world. Here's another printer printing an example of a Mount Fuji print. Uh, these are not the original blocks that were done at that time. If it was by Hokusai, Hokusai didn't uh, carve the wood blocks. It was the artisans who carved the wood blocks from his designs. Uh, so here they can recreate these and are, they are recreating them for the tourist market for the uh, print collectors. Um, here we have uh, Eva Peitziker, a German artist, is uh, showing the layout. One of the qualities of the printing is that it's very efficient. Everything is lying within arm's reach. You have all your tools right there. Of course, the Japanese artisans are uh, the printers are kneeling on the floor or sitting on the floor, so everything is within reach. And this image is showing the inking of the wood block with the brush, so everything gets colored. It's very different from using a roller where only the high parts get colored. So uh, it's hard to see what the image is there. Uh, and then the paper is positioned on the block using the special Kento registration marks that physically have a limit where the paper matches. And let me jump in, Karen, briefly. Um, you brought up this whole idea of um, a key block being the last one to be printed, and that really locks in the whole composition. But if we look at um, Helen Frankenthaler's print, and I show here Tales of Genji 4, I, I don't see a key block here. Like, I don't see that black outline. So the fact that um, Ken Tyler and the printmakers, they didn't use a key block in this series, um, does it affect the printing process? Um, can you shed some light on that? Well, I do think that uh, Helen came to this project with her paintings on plywood. Uh, and so those were the original uh, designs that the 
analysis was taken from, the analysis of the shapes of all the stains or the paints. And Helen doesn't rely on a key block regardless on any of her paintings anyway. So it, it really didn't need that first drawing, but they certainly had a tracing of all these different layers. And then those tracings were used to divide up onto the multiple blocks that were used. Uh, they totally relied um, very much on the skill of a pr master printer there at Tyler Graphics, Yasuyuki Shibata. His skill and his collaboration is paramount to how this project came about. He was the printer, printing by hand using the brushes. And uh, you can see him uh, inking up these big blocks and the paper is tied to one edge so that it was locked into place and could be uh, layered down like a book page and then the pressure was applied. Uh, these two examples um, show one of the specialty techniques that's so uh, identifiable and sought after for Japanese woodblock prints, and that's the gradation blend, um, where the colors are bleeding and blending into each other. Um, it's called bukashi, and it's actually a technique used with the brushes. And why I was emphasizing the ability that the brushes can do, it can actually create some of these blending by the use of color on one side, water on the other, and the pigment kind of um, bleeds into each other. And you can see them putting this blend on the block itself. Helen didn't rely so much in her Tales of Genji prints on the Bukashi method. <laughs> Ironically, she did create the illusion in that first print of Essence Mulberry. But that Bukashi blend is something that captivates everybody and how is that done? And it's really done on a, sometimes an uncut area and the blending is from how the ink is manipulated with the brush. And so pressure is applied by hand using the baron, uh, the bamboo wrapped disc and pressure by muscle, by hand impression on the back of the paper that causes that transfer. So, so I think even uh, Shibata was using the Baron to hand print Helen's prints. So we are currently at 615. Um, in the interest of time, why don't we move through um, a number of photographs that Karen, you have included very briefly, and maybe we can focus on Helen working at Tyler Graphics. Yes, yeah, so here's Helen working there, and you can see she carved some of the blocks, but Shibata carved most of the blocks. She's applying color with a brush there. Uh, she was involved in all the stages. Um, but I think uh, Shibata was instrumental in, in doing all the different testing and separating things, analyzing how the colors were uh, going to mesh together. They did print on specialty handmade paper made at Tyler Graphics. Uh, that uh, you can see the guys working there. And then that paper 
had the impression of a wood block that was also uh, carved or sanded so that the wood grain was very pronounced. Well, Ten Ken Tyler was the empresario of this whole project too. It's his studio, it was uh, a, an amazing project, lots of consultations. You can see all the wood blocks there and the proofs lining up uh, where they're working and discussing uh, what to do next and how to do it. So it was a, a, an amazing project. Yeah, and just um, looking at the number of wood blocks laid out on the floor right here in order to prove, um, to kind of prove Tales of Gendry 3 really does kind of highlight uh, the amount of collaboration and really the intensive labor that really went into um, this whole process. So I think, Karen, this is your last slide. This was the slide. These are the colors. It looks like the palette specifically from the print that the Sheldon now owns. So I, I, and I can tell that it's the water-based colors because they are in containers, not those sticky cans and brushes are there. So that is even telling me it's done in this technique. And I think we even see a little bit of one of the woodblocks for Tales of Genji with, you know, the very distinctive blue vertical elements that um, we see perhaps like somewhere in here. So thank you, Karen. That was fascinating. Um, so as we, like, as, as we have seen, Frankenthaler's print is really part of a rich history in terms of printmaking. And in Kuho, in the last um, three minutes that we have left, can you talk a little bit about how um, Tales of Genji, this 11th century text, continues to inspire um, different forms of artistic production? Uh, yes, maybe we can just move on to see some of the manga images. Um, yes, um, okay, so yes, definitely uh, this is because because of this uh, and the density and uh, the, you know, the volume of uh, the novel and the tale of Genji has been constantly influencing and the Japanese culture and cultural discourses in the and in, in the cultural productions over centuries, and so the one of the most uh, kind of significant achievement in the um, the past century would be maybe this adaptation uh, adaptation of this um the novel to manga format, and uh, um while I was just listen listening to uh, the Karen's presentation, I was thinking, um knowing or unknowing, I'm not sure intentionally or unintentionally, intentionally, but the manga. And the artist actually uses lots of technique of bokashi and the, the create a gradation to um, um, to produce a kind of visual effect of um, the characters, the inner and the feelings and emotions, uh, and and also the creator ambience. Um, so um, okay, so perhaps we don't have time to just uh, talk about each image. So maybe we can just move on. Yeah, and just briefly, I love how um, Yamato Waka, the artist, really kind of individualizes each of, um, you know, uh, Genji's many ladies that we see here. And I think this is a significant departure than, you know, some of the earlier images that we were looking at, where, you know, the um, female figures are kind of generic and doesn't really express their personality in the same sure. way that these uh, more contemporary images do. Absolutely. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> I was supposed to talk about this a little bit. Previous uh, pre-modern images, all the um, you know, and the human the faces were just uh, drawn in one pretty much pretty much one single pattern, on limited you know um the couple of and the lines and very simplistic lines and 
and the facial expressions were just uh, um, not, uh, you know, um, personalized. So every, both men and the women um, and all kinds of ages, you know, um, we cannot really make a distinction um, in, in the facial expression of the pre-modern um, images of the Genji's character. Um, but uh, here, I think, um, you know, one of the contributions this um, the artist Yamato Waki did was to give a more personal character uh, and really um, kind of individual um, persona to each um, the characters. Um, the one, uh, is uh, um, the woman in the center image, central image here is um, actually, she she was having a uh, sort of close and in intimate conversation with uh, Genji, but uh, both of them never um, had any, um, um, you know, in serious um, intimate relationship, but uh, just the um, kind of uh, contact was pretty platonic. So oftentimes this character is um, kind of dismissed and forgotten by many um, the artists or and the critics. But uh, and this and Yamato Waki is giving her really a great personality here in this image, I should say. And uh, um, yes, here there's a combination of Hikaru Genji and, and also the cherry blossom is pretty significant because um, the cherry blossom is usually a symbol of uh, this um, kind of Buddhist cosmology of uh, uh, you know um, the transience, the law of you know um, ephemerality of everything, the things uh, in this the tangible world. So uh, he cannot escape this law of you know uh, universe. So although kind of handsome uh, the figure and everybody, all the women loves him and his presence has been so much appreciated and eventually he becomes a semi-emperor um, semi, um, actually. So he attains um, politically such a high you know, um, the position and also pretty much he conquered every single, <laughs> most of every single um, um, women she wanted. So, but in the end, she also cannot escape, you know, this, uh, uh, the law of uh, transience. He needs to just uh, cross his life at certain point. So it is very um, kind of suggestive image. Um, we can just address in here. Um, this is just one quick and a shot of the manga, uh, the Japanese and um, the comic um, in, and, in the present time, many mangas has been just produced by computer graphics, but uh, still in the late uh, 20th century, like the 1980s and the 70s, um, every single manga artist was just creating all these images by everything by handwriting and using uh, the ink and pens, so painstakingly. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I think we can still see, you know, a similar point of view that is that we saw in some of the pre-modern images being used here. So again, there is this kind of long link um, really kind of showing how um, kind of these, these visual vocabularies continue, be, continue to be used today. Mm -hmm. and this is pretty much the last image uh, from Yamato Waki. Um, in, this is a pretty much a kind of um, his artist, um, artist um, imaginary, you know, the rendition of his other uh, death. Uh, because the last chapter, um, I mean, you know, uh, the 44th chapter um, of the pair of Genji just shows a blank page, you know, indicating the, uh, the Genji's death. So um, now, in intriguingly, he becomes kind of, uh, you know, being placed in a, um, almost a 
you know, overlooking universal position and uh, just looking over on the people who are still and living in this world and all the beloved has are now just being overlooked by him. So seemingly, and here also we can see some bokashi and the techniques um, in this um, image. Yeah, and I find it so evocative that um, Genji's death is not spelled out um, because that the 44th chapter, as you said, is blank. So it's really up to us to really imagine and kind of kind of fill in the blanks as to how we each think um, how Ken, uh, Genji died. So I think that's very, very evocative. And then finally, this is delightful. I love it. <laughs> uh, this is, uh, yes, this is actually, um, this is an adaptation of manga uh, into a theatrical um, production. And this, and the Takarazuka Operetta trope, um, all the, and the actors are actually the, all women. Um, and uh, but the rendition of you know some images, some scenes here, are more like a mu um, you know produced in the form of musical um, or operetta, if you will. Um, and but the use of the color is pretty um, the graphic and pretty striking. Um, you know, instead of um, more like a pre-modern kind of subtlety uh, that the many artists were just using in the the choice of you know the and the careful choice of colors. Um, I would say that uh, this um, image is, you know, this, uh, this, um, the interpretation of the, um, the novel and the manga itself is more like in the line of uh, the Kabuki theater, one more like, you know, the 18th century, um, the ukiyo-e tradition, um, I would say. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing um, all of these wonderful kind of contemporary manifestations of the tales of Genji. And I think we can place Helen's print um, kind of in, 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 in a similar tradition, like Helen made this print um, and it was completed in 1998. So it really is part of this kind of legacy of um, the tales of Genji. And it really does highlight um, the cultural exchange that, you know, this American artist had and how it was really inspired by this Japanese textual source and really the production of it is, is dependent on, um, it wouldn't have happened without the collaboration um, with the Japanese printmakers. So based on this fascinating conversation that we've had, um, I am actually really thrilled that Sheldon um, had the opportunity to acquire the print and to have it on view through December. And it is at this moment that I would like to open this conversation up to um, our webinar attendees. So if you have any questions, um, please type them in the Q&A box. And um, yeah, I welcome any questions. And I think Aaron, if you could jump in and um, share some of them, that would be great. Yes. Um... Thank you both Karen and Ikuho. Really, really fascinating, um, interesting uh, conversation. We did have a question about the edition of um, Helen Frankenthaler's print. How many were printed? And I, and I did make a note that it was an edition of 30, um, but I don't remember which edition, which number we might have. I think we have the eighth edition. Um, another question, do we know what interested Frankenthaler in this topic, in the tale of Genji, for these images? I, could I speak to that a little bit? Because I'm thinking that um, Helen, like many artists, have been influenced by um, Japanese art 
and art throughout all those centuries. When I studied uh, Japanese art history, we saw those images of the tales of Genji, which always made me wonder, what is the tales of Genji? I read the novel, but to see generations and er different eras interpret it visually in, in screens and scrolls and pa album paintings um, has inspired artists throughout the world. So I think Helen was part of that, looking at those uh, images over time and being responding to um, some of the weathering of the paint. That was what was so significant in some of those early examples. The paint has flaked off, it's stains, it's uh, faint residues of a, of a cart floating in space. So aesthetically, she was, like many of us, being inspired by uh, those characteristics of how the compositions are. So I think that's, that's where the inspiration comes, not necessarily telling a specific uh, facet of a chapter, but uh, the kind of the aesthetic beauty of those uh, interpretations. And I'm always struck by kind of the, the large planes of colors that we see in some of the earliest, earliest scrolls and looking at, you know, these large planes of, um, mm -hmm. of, of ink. I'm also wondering if that is what um, also drew Helen to these um, narratives as well. Um, can I can I just also jump into this conversation? And I've been always wondering and also being fascinated at the same time. Uh, you know, um, uh, Frankenthaler, she definitely uh, kind of derived certain motifs and uh, you know um, her own fascination um, as a source. Uh, you know, he, she used the tale of Genji for sure, but her title of all these pieces, uh, you know, the plural from the the tales, tales of Genji instead of the, the tale of Genji. So um, I'm wondering if any of you could just share, uh, you know, her kind of um, artistic intentions and uh, kind of purviews that she's, you know, uh, bringing into her collection. Yeah, that, um, that, that slight <laughs> shift in the title has puzzled me. And um, yeah, I wish, I wish I knew. Karen, do you have any thoughts? Not sure I understood the question, but or the di distinction. Oh, so um, the the Japanese text is titled "The Tale of Genji," tale being singular, mm -hmm. and yet Helen Frankenthaler titles her print series um, "The Tales of Genji," turning tales mm -hmm. into plural. So interesting. Yeah. <laughs> if any of our attendees have any thoughts, we welcome them as well. Good distinction. Yeah. Right. Well, I want to be really mindful of time. I had one last question. Um, was the paper making process developed specifically to absorb the wood grain onto the image? Oh, well, the paper that they were making appears to be quite heavy. Uh, made more in the Western way of paper than the Japanese method, which usually has thinner weight paper. So they made a Western style paper, but it had the wood grain either impressed for texture, or I actually think they might have put ink on that textured wood block, impressed that into the paper. So um, 
I don't know if it was done in a oil-based method or a relief method, or actually I suspect an intaglio method, wiping the wood block <laughs> to get the texture impressed in. Fascinating. Well, um, I think at this point, you all have stuck with us for an hour. We really, really appreciate you joining us this evening. Um, thank you, Karen. Thank you, Ikuho. Thank you, Melissa. Um, this has been um, a true joy. And as I mentioned before, we will get this up on our website um, as soon as we are able. Um, so that way you can go back and revisit, share with your, your friends or colleagues. Thank you again and stay safe.